Welcome, fellow traveler. You are now listening to the Tent Theology Podcast. Each week, we have a tent talk where we pursue the renewing of the Christian social and political imagination. Welcome, friends. This is Tent Theology. My name is Chris Marchand. Today on the podcast is worship leader, songwriter, recording artist, Brian Dirksen. Many people know Brian as a church music leader, a worship leader, songwriter. That's how I knew him. He's been influential in my own life, especially as a church music leader. But recently, Brian recorded a song called 215. And that's why we're having him on the podcast today. It's a challenging song. It's a song written specifically to Canadians, though I suspect those in the United States and elsewhere can find a lot to be challenged and convicted by, a lot to grieve over. Let me read the song's description, which you can find on YouTube. Here's what it says. In late May of 2021, the remains of 215 children were found at the site of the Kamloops Indian Residential School in British Columbia that closed in 1978. Schools like this one were run by the church on behalf of the government across Canada. The number of unmarked graves at residential school sites continues to grow and has reached into the thousands. Stephen and I wanted to document Brian's story of writing this song, and that's why we're having him on Tent Theology today. That's where our conversation goes. We go into Canadian culture and the history there and how Brian, a white European evangelical Christian, how might he reconcile with his country's past and the role the church played in it? And along with that, how might he take on a continued posture of listening to the indigenous peoples of his country? I wanted to make a note that Brian co-wrote the song 215 with Cheryl Bear, who is a professor at Regent College in Vancouver and of the Nodley Waten First Nation. I hope you find our conversation challenging and worth contemplating. We don't know when the storm is going to break But underneath all things the everlasting arms We don't know how much more our hearts can take Underneath all things the everlasting arms Here's my first question, and this is like a connection with my co-host, and he's he's the founder of this podcast. His name's Stephen Backhouse, and he's a Canadian theologian. He's written books on Soren Kierkegaard and church history book, and well, his dad, I think, was a teacher at the Prairie School. Like, what's what's the name okay. of the college? Uh, well, Prairie College, but um, it used to be Prairie Bible mm-hmm. College. And now I think it's just called Prairie College. And you used to teach there, is that correct? So I I, I was a part-time prof there for four years between yeah. 2014 and 2018. Do you currently do any any teaching like that? Or I think I, I heard an interview with you uh, a decent long ago. I don't know if it was like the Drew Marshall show or something like that. You were doing you were talking a lot about helping people write worship songs. Is that something you still do? So, yeah. So what I'm doing now is actually I am filming, writing, filming, and editing an online songwriting course called Unlocking Your Songs. And it will be released in 2022. 
and but it's 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 a fairly broad course it's really for anybody interested in the craft of songwriting be it people in the faith community or people a folk writer or pop writer the principles are almost all the same so that's yeah that's actually probably one of my main focuses right now well that's cool and i associate that with like the master class kind of setup is it similar to that in a way yes yes yeah. this will be uh 30 hub video sessions like 30 to 40 minutes long where i take you through all the layers of the craft and then depending upon how people sign up to the course they can also sign up for a more interactive version of the course where they can get consultations on their songs where they can join zoom q a's so we're, we're we're all in the we're in the middle of developing all of it and researching all of the aspects of that course right now will it be through your website or like a different organization well there'll be a link through brianderkson.com but it'll also be unlockingyoursongs.com and i have my my son-in-law luke who married our daughter he's a film guy he's uh he figures out helps me figure out a lot of how to do these things so i come up with the content and then he films and edits them and helps me on the tech side yeah we, we, everybody needs that right you know like yeah it, it takes a team to do it <laughs> especially me yeah, there you go now I've noticed on a lot of your music videos, like it says uh, filmed by or directed by, and it has a name there. What's, is that your son? The Arctic. Is that the your The Arctic. That's my son-in-law. That's his kind of musical moniker that he goes by. And he did a collective with some other, you know, friends and stuff. And he's born in Alaska. He, he loves the cold. And so he just latched onto that moniker, like kind of like the Arctic. So yeah, that's him. Oh, that's really cool. <laughs> uh, one of our initial questions, we like to ask everybody, uh, we actually are, you know, interviewed the Archbishop of Canterbury once, and uh, Stephen did. And uh, uh, he, I wish he would have asked him this question, was asked the Archbishop. But guess what? The Archbishop only had like this short window of time. But we try to ask a decent amount of our guests this question, which is, what's what's your heritage of politics and and what i and what we mean to say is is what was given to you as you were growing up what were you used to and over the years what what it, what might have changed for you oh man i was raised in um, a conservative mennonite church community now by conservative i don't mean like horse and buggy okay i just mean conservative views politically theologically modern in other ways i guess and so i would have i would have been raised by parents who would have voted conservative in that leaning any any election and they would have advocated for traditional judeo-christian values asking that me about my political heritage you know as a canadian we are an interesting bunch because <laughs> We are kind of like a bridge culture between the United States and Europe, okay? So a lot of how we view life and how we handle things like politics skews more towards Europe. But in pop culture, we're more connected to like, you know, Hollywood film, pop music. Mm -hmm. but, but under the surf, that's kind of like, I'm going to, maybe this is the wrong way of saying, but that's kind of like surface stuff. But as soon as you start going into deeper things like, yeah, like what political leaning do you have? How do you view financial fiscal policy? How do you view 
um, the environment. How do you view? The, we're much more, I think, European. Healthcare, right? That's a big one. Exactly. Right? Health healthcare would be an example. You know, each of these subjects are fraught with so many complexities and polarizations. Well, so maybe my question would be, as an American, if I make a statement as an American Christian uh, about healthcare, somebody's going to attack me from some side. Is it right. is it similar for you as a Canadian if you were to make a statement about healthcare? There is virtually no debate about healthcare in Canada from a Christian side or any side other than the fact that we are thankful for our healthcare providers and we grieve they're not um, supported well enough and that there's like any institution or system it has flaws in its partially broken right for example my sister-in-law uh, my brother's wife has had a back issue that requires back surgery has put her out of work for a year and a half and she's on a waiting list right and she can't work because of this in the states my understanding is you depending upon her what her insurance policy would have been that procedure would have happened a long time ago, or if she didn't have policy, if she if she could have paid half a million dollars for it, she would have just gotten it. And in Canada, that's not an option. So there's there's pros and cons to every system. But I'm gonna, I had this crazy moment. Okay, I was on tour in the U.S. on a tour bus with. Uh, should I say who? Uh, well, yeah, I'll just say who because it was like a, it was a trio. So that that it was Paul Balash, Catherine Scott from Northern Ireland, and myself, plus a band and techs and stuff. And we were doing these kind of experience worship concerts, conferences, traveling throughout the states. And somewhere on our journey, healthcare situation came up, and. Somebody made a comment like, you know, if we get if we get universal health care in the United States, if uh, Obama gets his way, I mean, that's the beginning of the end for like the church for like it was like it was like made into this like huge moral spiritual theological deal and i'm like i'm the canadian on the bus and of course catherine is the northern ireland and we both come from countries of socialized like just it's like well everybody gets access to health care it's just part of what it means to be a citizen of canada so i put up my hand and go um it's not really a big deal you know da, da, da. i say a couple things and several of the crew and band just look at me like like i've become the antichrist you know like i am just this evil person on the bus and i thought okay well i guess uh, we won't be talking about this issue anymore <laughs> um now see now see on in one way you just proved the the cliche that that i've always heard from americans which is it's like you said your sister or sister-in-law. Yeah. That's the cliche we've always heard. The the yeah. the person who needs care. It's like, well, we don't want we don't want to be Canadian because you know what happens is you have a need and you're just sitting there waiting for a year and a half or whatever. Yeah. So that so there's that on the one hand and then we proved the cliche on the other hand which was like, whoa, 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 slow down there. You know, the mark mark of the beast isn't coming here. It just means people, get, you know, like, uh, you know, so it's kind of funny. Like, what, what what would you say to us Americans who like, well, we don't want to be Canadian because of the 
you know, we'll be sitting there with a broken back for 10 years. Uh, how, how do you yeah. respond to that? <laughs> uh, well, I mean, there, like I say, there's, there's, there's pros and cons to both systems. And, you know, can, Canadian system tries desperately, doesn't always succeed, but to give equality to everybody. So no matter of your econo- no matter your economic status, you should have access to health care. But the problem is our country is too sick. In other words, there's too much chronic illness because of all kinds of reasons, environmental reasons, you know, economic reasons. They don't have access to quality enough food. They don't have access to good counsel as far as exercise. Like, and then there's the, you know, whatever, all the, there's all these layers to it, right? Because the reality is people that are healthy, that eat well, that have the economics to do the above, they don't really need the healthcare system, right? So, but the problem is too many Canadians are, are, are relying on, I'm, I'm making all these sometimes bad choices in my life and then I think I can just pop a pill to fix it and then it doesn't work. Oh, now I need surgery. Now I have to wait for surgery. I mean, that's again, oversimplification, but... You know, my wife and I have just tried in everything in our life, you know, to be more about preventative and maintenance when it comes to health than than crisis management. And there's a lot of crisis management going on both personally and in the healthcare system in Canada. So it's not it's definitely not perfect. Well, well, and and so that's a lot of what we talk about here with these our with our conversations. It isn't just one thing or another. It's how are they interconnected? And then what do, what do people like us, whether we're ministers or we're leaders of some sort, what do we do about it? And how do we how do we bring about better change into the world? Yeah, and I and I think we we continue to do so by making choice choices of self-care and health and everything we can for us and our family to walk in that kind of consistent, healthy choices. And then we utilize our uh, democratic privilege privilege is that the right word because <laughs> i don't want to say the word right duty responsibility uh... our duty or responsibility to vote for i i always say i my focus is not voting on for for people or parties but my my focus is voting for policies for voting for things that actually move us as a society towards health if a particular party that I was raised to vote for is consistently supporting policies that don't lead towards health, I will not vote for them. I will vote for some other person or party, not because of the person or party, but because of the policies they stand for. I actually wish, and I, I, I was on a plane, this is just before covid I was happened to be seated beside one of the heads of the Canadian radar airplane, like, and and he were, he had a he had a couple of people he worked with in the states, and they work at all of the how plane patterns and you know fl- flight patterns and safety all over all over North America, and we were we there was an election coming up, and we started talking, and we both had come to the same conclusion. We wish that we could vote for policies instead of politicians. That there was like these, okay, here's 10 policies. What do you want to support with your tax 
dollars with your vote and then whoever whoever's going to serve those policies that's what we're going to support you know but it's so so hard because when when election time comes there's so much spin there's so much twisting the other party twists what the other party says and manipulates things and it's like yeah it's tough and just to be clear because i'm, a, I'm an american and I'm, I'm i'm a born narcissist you're you're uh, you're speaking of canadian politics right when you when, uh, when you say that because <laughs> yeah. I, I can only read into it like you must mean america because that's all americans can no. think about as themselves like no yeah. no i'm not talking about america at all <laughs> i'm talking about the crisis in canada and our pol political landscape yeah oh man okay no, we'll, we'll 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 get to this later because I I have this crazy two fifteen indigenous. Okay. Yeah. Well, so this so what you were gonna say relates to the song. Yeah. Well, let's let's get into that, and you can feel free to take things, you know, where you want. But I have a you know I have a, I have a set of questions here. I mean, yeah. he, here's maybe my my first question is the catalyst for the song, and for you as a songwriter, you know, I'm looking back on your recent albums. And, you know, it's Christmas songs, right? You know, and yeah. um, your other songs like Everlasting Arms, where you're bringing comfort to people, right? You're, you're, you're saying, lean on God, depend on God. And then here, something clicks in you. You're like, I'm going to write a song that might ruffle some feathers. What was the, what was the thing that clicked over where you're like, yeah, I got to do this? Well, first of all, I have always deeply believed in the power and importance of singing lament and singing protest okay mm -hmm. and i think history is full of the of examples of lament songs of protest songs and i think the bible is full of examples of lament and protest songs obviously as a musician i would rather major on the positive on the comfort but by doing so, you are ignoring the truth of what is right in front of you. You are offering false comfort, and it's not something I can live with doing. Okay, with that as a background, the way I write songs is simply this, is I live my life, and I wait for the next seed to fall into the soil of my life, okay? I, I, I'm very, very emphatic about this god does not give us songs we are given seeds okay and what happens to those seeds depends upon the quality of soil into which the seed falls it depends upon our personality everything so if you want to use god language then god gifts the seeds to us all of us, all of us humans, creative beings, we, we, are, we are given creative thoughts. We are, that's all a gift. But what we do with those seeds depends upon us. And, you know, so I'm just like living and it's the 3rd of June and my wife is away uh, at a clinical trial for Fragile X Syndrome, which is a condition that we have two son, adult sons with and one of our uh, daughters has. And they were at another city in Canada at clinical trials working on developing treatments for Fragile X. So I'm home alone taking care of our spe our adult special needs son and working. And, and it's about 4.30 in the morning and I'm woken up. And I'm woken up with 215 
and all of a sudden I, I, I'm, I'm waking up and it's so clear. I like, I go, Oh crap. (laughs) I've just been given a songwriting assignment and it's the song I wish I didn't have to write. And what had happened was a week before that, the news broke that, that only about two and a half hours from where I live in my same province, British Columbia, they had discovered the, the remains of 215 children in unmarked graves. So what had happened was over a period of time, the, the, the government and church that was running what they called an Indian residential school which was existed to try and kill the Indian, but turn this this child towards more modern Western ways and, and not allow them to be Indian, not allow them to speak their mother tongue, not allow them to have culture, not allow them anything. One by one, group by group, these children would die after they had been abused they had been sexually abused they had been physically abused they had been malnourished and their bodies just cast off into like unmarked graves and of course the people who were putting them there i well i don't even have words for some of how i feel about this but their own they were covering up their own sin their own wrong their own their own violence and eventually, these graves were discovered. And of course, this, the number, the fact that this, this whole thing, like we've, Canadians have known about Indian residential schools for decades, and they moved to get them shut down in the 60s. They knew, but they, they didn't feel it in their, like, like all of us, European-rooted settler colonizers, as the indigenous would call us, we knew, but we didn't really know in our gut for some reason. And when this news story broke, it was like it was like a punch to to almost every Canadian, going, "Oh, how could this happen? And why did it take so long for us to actually face it?" So for about a week, I was just like, I was a mess. Like, I was like, and then I'm thinking, I keep on waiting for like church leaders, um, Christian artists to start like speaking up and to start saying, this is incredible. This is so tragic, you know, and it was silent. And I thought, well, one reason I get is because there was a feeling for all of us settlers that now was not the time to speak. Now was the time to listen to indigenous voices and to be humble and willing to learn from our past mistakes. And I get that, and that's still my my posture. So then I thought, and I actually reached out to a couple of other artists, and I was like, yeah, so who's going to speak? Like, how somebody needs to say something, but we're all trying to listen, and everybody's like, it's too fraught right now. We just have to wait. And anyway, that morning, and then I wake up with this 250, you know, the mel- I'm singing the number, and I go, oh, that's my songwriting assignment. So I, I, I write the song, and um, over basically that couple of days, I write the song, and then I think, oh, boy, what do I do with this? And thankfully, my son-in-law, Luke, and I were having a conversation about it, I play it for him in rough format and he we start talking and goes, you know, the first step we should do 
is we should reach out to an indigenous artist. Somebody we know who has, you know, some Christian faith, but also who is very, very indigenous. They know who they are in their in their mother culture and mother tongue. And so there was a local indigenous artist that I had met at a Jesus and justice conference the year before her name is Cheryl bear. And I reached out to her and, and, uh, 48 hours, nothing. And I thought, Oh shoot. Now I've, I've offended her and I I've said the wrong thing in the song. And, and then she responded and said, it's very, very difficult for me to do this because we're all in deep trauma. But, I love what you're trying to do. And if you're willing, let me give you some perspective on even the words you're writing. And then she started responding. And I had a line in the song that hit her funny that she just said, that makes me, that that doesn't feel right to me. And then, so then I responded and saying, Cheryl, I am welcoming you if you want would you write this with me? Would you help me bring this over the finish line so that in the end, you as an indigenous person, even though it's not your expression of lament and of confession, you go, this is true what Brian is singing. And so that was an amazing gift in the middle of her trauma. Do you remember what your original line said and how did she reshape it? Oh yeah, what, I know. How, yeah, how did she reshape it? What was the line and how did she reshape well, it? Well, well, so the 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 line was where it, the the bridge ends right now goes we weep with the indigenous and stand with all who mourn. My original lyric said I want to be indigenous and weep uh, with all who mourn. Okay. And she went basically oh that sits really bad and i i said let me tell you why i said i want to be indigenous because i so i'm so broken over what us settlers have done and i identify with the way you you process spirituality it's more connected to the land it's more so i mean this as the highest compliment but then I go, but I can get how you as an indigenous person could hear that and go, what, now you're trying to like claim to be us too? Like just after you, you know, so anyway, so, so I said, okay, well, what, how could we reshape this? So then over conversations and over several weeks, it got reshaped to, we weep with the indigenous, we as in the settlers and stand with all so that's us now saying and now we're going to stand with you as indigenous people and say we're going to own what we did wrong and we're going to stand with you shoulder to shoulder sisters and brothers we are fellow canadians who want a better future than we've had the destruction of the past right why did it take so and the government complicit in violence.
Okay, uh, I, have a, I have a couple of quick questions or one quick question and I'll get to a longer question. As an American, we say Native American yep. population I, and I hear you using indigenous and, and I, when, when I was in Canada for a little bit, they were using First Nations. And so yep. I'm curious, what, what is currently proper? What, what are people want to be called or how to, you know, so what, what's, uh, what's the status? Well, indigenous, indigenous has become their preferred label, if you want to call it that, though they still use First Nations. And of course, Native American, we're, we're in North America. And of course, the, the First Nations, the, the, the Natives, they, they didn't recognize the border anyway. So, I mean, they're, those all work. And I don't know whether this is part of the Indigenous in Canada creating a slight distinction from Native Americans because of their political reality that they're living in in Canada, but they have definitely landed on Indigenous. I with a capital. Right. Okay. Okay. Next somewhat maybe quick question is, do you have your own story of knowing Indigenous people? I'm from Illinois, so I am on Native land, uh, Indigenous lands, but I'm far removed from it. Um, I grew up influenced by Rich Mullins and his work, and he moved out to the Navajo Nation. I mean, huge influence on my life. One of my best friends, he ran a radio station on the Navajo Nation and, you know, trying to do ministry amongst uh, people there. Things like Dances with Wolves, right? That could be a big moment uh, for some white people. It's like just realizing, coming face to face with the fact of what we did. But I don't really... I, I went to seminary with one Navajo guy and he was mind blowing to me, like his boldness to stand and both mm-hmm. proclaim Christ and proclaim his own identity. I, 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 I wish I could get back to that guy. Like I want to like, I want to know him better, but you know, we, we went our yeah. separate ways after seminary. W- what's your own story on that? Are you in more proximity to indigenous peoples? Where the, the town, small city that I live in, Abbotsford, um, which is about 45 minutes east of Vancouver, there's not tons of indigenous people here. We've got about 150,000 people. Most of us are European settlers, and then about a third of our city is from the Punjab in India. They're Sikhs by religion. So there's a lot of saris and turbans and and actually signs that are in English and Punjabi. When I was a young person, one of the things we would do is we would go often on Monday evenings uh, to the heart of Vancouver, the downtown east side, where a lot of the street people were. We would stand on the, you know, stand around, pull out guitars, sing songs, wander the neighborhood, talk to people, give them food, pray for them. And through this, I met Steve, Indian Steve, uh, (laughs) who was living kind of on the street. Eventually, I brought him back to our house. He lived with us for a while. Then he he stole a bunch of stuff. He made off with, came back once, kicked our door down. And in the end, my mom, my dear mother, basically even though all of this shenanigans were going on, she basically adopted him. And up until my mom's death, she would like sew blankets for him. She He went in and out of prison for a bit and then came out the other side and has been an absolute wonderful 
person and friend for the last number of years. I don't see him that often, but um, when we see him, there's a lot of affection. And yeah, so I, I have some connection. Often the stereotype is tragically true in Canada that in the roughest parts of our big cities, a good portion of those struggling with addiction and living rough are Indigenous people. And when I look at the root causes, I'm not surprised, right? We have stolen pretty much everything from them, starting with, the, you know, the doctrine of discovery, you know, that these were, these lands were like uninhabited and we just claimed them. And so we stole their land. And then of course we stole their children with residential schools. And then we, the big scoop of the sixties where we forced indigenous people to give up their children and adopt them. I, I'm, but the thing is, it's terrible that the history, but you know, the thing that I'm hearing after some of these indigenous people have heard 215 and I've dialogued with them is there is a, a surging hope that finally, because truth is being acknowledged of what actually happened, that there's going to be a different future, that there's hope in these people. And some of them are, are like you described your, your friend that you met in seminary. Some of them are deeply indigenous and also Christian Christ followers that they see and hear in the message of Christ and in the gospel, a hope and a connection with God that is something that they can identify with. In the meantime, they also have all of their indigenous identity and even their indigenous spirituality. You know, my friend Cheryl, you know, they'll, they'll sage, you know, a room with sage smoke. They'll do these different indigenous rituals and it works together in a way that probably for some Europeans in the past, they would have go, oh, you have to like give all that up. And now I think we're coming more to our senses and recognizing, no, this is, this is, this is good culture. There's good culture in there and it shouldn't be obliterated. Yeah. 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 So this leads to my next question, which I'm kind of going to combine a couple of thoughts here, which is, one, who was this song written for? Because I don't necessarily mm. hear it as being written to indigenous populations. It's written no, it's not. to the established European churches. So that's that, that's one prong of yeah. my question. Like, just try to, is that yeah. the case? And the other side of it is, okay, you're right. So what now kind of question? Right. Because I don't know about you, but... We, you know, we live in COVID time and there's elections and there's other like things are passing by us like so rapidly all the time. Yeah. And so how do we yeah. take this moment and go, yeah, what how do we as the church discern what do we do? We have to make changes. We have to bring about reconciliation. What what are some of the conversations you've been a part of since the songs come out? Some very interesting conversations and hopeful conversations. You know, I wrote 215, not for indigenous people, but for us as the European settlers and specifically people of faith. And I think there is a parallel story going on in the United States. It's not just Canada that had residential schools. Okay, so 
you know, when we sing we're Christian and Canadian yet now ashamed of both, I mean, it could be the same. We're Christian and American yet now ashamed of both. We weep with the indigenous. Like, the thing is, is that what we recognize in our in the backstory is this Christian nationalism, this Christian fused with empire that is completely anti-Christ, okay? It is, it is so the opposite of the spirit of Jesus. It's astounding. So we're owning that. You know, we, ha- we had in Canada a thing called the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. This is owning our truth. If we're going to have reconciliation, you have to first acknowledge the truth of what happened. And then, you know, well, what's next? I would say listening, right? We're listening to indigenous native voices. How, how are you doing? How, what, what, what have you gone through? Tell us your story. Like now's the time for us to listen. The next thing I say is, you know, as we're talking about it is how can we learn new patterns new language even to have healthier interactions with people who of course there's some of the indigenous population that um, want nothing to do with Christianity and there are indigenous people who have found in Jesus a savior that actually is they they realize this for their nation too when it says in scripture Jesus is the hope of the nations that their na- yes he's for us too but not that type of christianity not the empire type of christianity the jesus of the gospels who was for the marginalized who was um healer of of the sick who went after the one who was stranded and lost you know and then, and then, of course, it's the hope is that each of us in different ways could become personally connected with indigenous people and that we learn to love each other. So for me, it's like the listen, learn, and love, that we find ways to serve and support. We give of our resources, of our time, our energy. There's, a, there's something here in Canada that's, that's they're exploring where charities are being formed so that whatever indigenous lands a European person is living on, that they can give to a, char- a local charity that benefits the, the tribe that was unseated, that, that never actually gave up their territory, it was stolen from them. You know, like we're, fi- we're trying to find practical ways. How do we actually walk this out now? So it's not just a quick passing issue. Do Canadians use the word reparations? Because that's what we would say down here is like, that's a form of reparations, a form of it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think all of those things are important steps. Of course, when, when a life is stolen, how do you repay in reparations for a life? And of course, you know, you look back in the biblical accounts and, Apparently, you know, some of the reparations that were mandated in like in the Old Testament were significant improvements on the culture that surrounded them. But still, you look at those things and you go, how do you, how do you put a price tag on a life? How do you, I mean, a child being sent to residential school, then abused, then 
then then dies and throws into an unmarked grave. It's all of the potential. It's all of the, how do you pay for that? Yeah, that was actually one of the questions and I'm, I'm you just brought it up naturally. And I guess maybe I'm interested if there's more to say on that, which is I, I was looking at some articles and, you know, there's different, there's different schools, right? You know, and different schools have different numbers of the graves associated and attached and some are, you know, greater to lesser extent. I mean, again, it's like, every life is a tragedy, every life lost. So getting into the numbers too much is a bit too, I don't know, too in the weeds for me. I think what I was interested in, and I didn't quite know yet, which was how these children died. And so you seem to be implying that, I mean, there, there was abuse, there was neglect involved. Is that, is that what is part of what's coming out of this story? It's not just that they died. Oh, okay. A kid died. You know, they got, I mean, you know, like they didn't have healthcare the same, you know, they didn't have uh, tuberculosis vaccines and antibiotics and okay. People died back then, but what you're saying and what's coming out of this is true abuse and neglect. And well, because, and absolutely some of them died of the same things that other children were dying of. Okay. The, the hunch that's that's emer that you know emerging is that in those cases there would have been a, a more natural easy reason to contact the family and say we're, so, we're we're sorry to say your your child has died of this but this is going around in culture at large but I mean there are countless stories for example of of children being like thrown downstairs of um, sexual abuse, a physical abuse, and then and and then being locked up like in in cages and as punishment and stuff, and so and, and eventually some of these children succumb to their to the effects of their abuse, and then those children, I in my you know like they're they're put in these unmarked graves because they're being put in there out of even shame of how they were treated right that their bodies are covered with bruises and marks and stuff and so it's not like can be like you know handed over to their parents right you know like it's just uh, that's why for for the first week after this news broke I just walked, I kind of like stumbled around going, I don't even know. Like it started unraveling for me some of my Canadian identity. And it started unraveling some of my Christian identity because these were, these things were done by Christian supposed leaders, right? Now I understand like my, you know, my denomination, I was raised in a Mennonite kind of German conservative you know, Mennonites weren't running residential schools as far as I know. It was Catholic, it was Anglican, it was some of the more historically rooted denominations. But I've always seen myself as we're all one church, right? We're all, we have different labels and denominations, but we're all, and it just, it just start, it's just started unraveling things for me. And I don't, there's no quick fix for that. There's just, I just have to let it happen i have to come to terms with it along with that i'm curious about this as far as canadian and american christian identities there's a chance that if if somebody in america in the church would bring up this issue because we, we we would have our own stories here we would be labeled as oh well brian dirksen just turned woke on us didn't he 
And right. uh, I don't know if you do you use that term <laughs> are, are, are Christians being labeled with that term? They're, they say, Brian Dirksen hates Canada now. Oh, so you're saying that you right. that all white Canadians are awful people. Uh, and instead, I, I, I think maybe what I'm contemplating in myself is why can't you just lament? Like I'm, I'm right. speaking to myself. It's OK right. to just grieve. Instead of saying, oh, yeah, all, you know, now you hate America. No, I'm just grieving. Yeah. And I had, you know, a few comments online pushing back. You've gone too far. I've had somebody else refer to me as half woke. And I was <laughs> trying to figure out, I was trying to figure out what the heck that meant. I've had people say, you know, oh, you're not becoming like one of those progressive Christians, are you? You know, like... It's, it's so weird, actually, to hear words, progressive or woke or something, that are actually talking about waking up to truth or progressing to learn, which means to learn as that as so that's a bad label. And of course, as soon as we get into labeling, we're getting into us versus them. We're getting into the age-old human problem that Jesus was trying to pull us away from, in my opinion. Put it this way. We, ha we are so afraid of lament, of grief, of death, of talking about those things. They make us so uncomfortable. I talk about the, um, the difficult emotions. You know, we want to focus just on the positive emotions so we are this death-denying, you know, lament-avoiding culture because as a church where we exist within that culture, we take on those characteristics and we somehow believe and then we read back, we read back into the Bible through that filter of our culture and yet there's so much in the Bible that talks about, you know, mourn with those who mourn. The indigenous First Nations people in our land are in deep mourning. And they're in deep mourning because we tried through intimidation, through assimilation, through eradication, through whatever word you want to use, we tried to force them to convert to our type of of spirituality to our type of faith and I don't hate my nation the reason why I'm singing this song is because I love my nation but I'm ashamed of how Canada and the church in Canada treated the indigenous people full stop and I'm grieving that and I'm coming to terms with something that I should have come to terms with a long time ago Along with that, then, at the end of your video, it says Indian residential school survivors, and you give a hotline. Uh, people can call. You know, what are you hoping? Who are those people? And, and uh, what, what do they offer? What, 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 are, they, uh, what are they hoping from? Well, what they, they, offer? They, they would offer, I mean, those hotlines are primarily for Indigenous people. And I understand that it's not primarily Indigenous people watching video though actually it's been amazing how many indigenous people have watched it and a number of them have commented and written and thanked me and 
But what those hotlines are offering is because of the intensity of the trauma and reliving some of these memories, there's mental health issues, suicidal issues, everything, that this is, these are safe people on the other end of that phone that will help people process some of that pain. I also want to just put it there because I want us Europeans to know that just like we give to other charities to other parts of the world you know we send our money for victimized you know impoverished people in other parts of the world we have people right here that have been victimized and marginalized and they need support and they need help and i want to encourage people uh to speak up for that to give their money towards that and to acknowledge that that's important One last question about this, and it relates to the responsibilities of worship leaders, pastors. How do you see this moment in in uh, in Canada as as a as an opportunity for pastors, music leaders to shape this type of lament? Uh, How do how do you bring it into the churches, the church community, into the gathered worship? Uh, Is is there something? Have you thought of anything along those lines? Have you had conversations about that? Well, I, I didn't write this song as a congregational lament. No. Yeah, right, right. Though a number of churches in Canada have used it as such because sometimes we can recognize even psychologically that lament is a healthy thing to do as humans and the pathway to joy often is through first expressing our, our sorrow. Um, but often we do it in a way that's very non-specific. It's just the human condition, right? And so what 215 and what the situation does is try and give people, uh, well, this is actually specifically what's happening in our nation. Let's, let's lament this. Next year, there may be something else to lament, though I tell you, the indigenous issue has been so long in, in simmering, it's not going to be fixed quickly. I, I often I'll say to people, you know, when you think about congregational worship and lament, one third of the Psalms are lament. And then I'll ask at workshops, say there's 200 worship leaders there, I'll ask, how many of you have sung a lament in your church in the last year? And the answer usually up until COVID was about 5% on average, could identify one lament that they've sung in the last year. And then I say, well, okay, well, how, about how many songs have, have you sung in your church in the last year? And then they'll okay, well, we sing, you know, six every week, so that's six times, you know, and they're doing the math, and then I'm going, okay, so do you understand that if you were being biblical in your pattern of lament, you would have sung like 50 laments. You would have sung, okay, that's if you sing 150 songs in your, but you're, most of you are singing 300 song slots in the year, so you would have sung 100. Anyway, and they just all, they, they, pan, they have this look of complete panic on their face. And I go, and I'm not saying that, you're, that we're going to go from nothing to 100, but I say, every quarter like include a lament take a moment to say i don't know 
here in our congregation, how many of you are suffering loss? How many of you have lost a loved one in this last year? How many of you are struggling in your business? But Psalm 13, how long, O Lord, will you forget me? How long will you look the other way? The psalmist is saying, this is what it feels like when you are in the middle of suffering and disorientation. And if, I say, if we never include those laments in our congregational gathering, our song selection is sinning against the suffering. How long, O Lord, will you forget? are bombarding them with these constant positive uplifting upbeat songs when what they actually need is an expression to 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 cathartically release their grief and their sadness so this is a huge issue and i've i've talked about it i've taught on it in workshops for the last 20 years when i when i even recorded my first setting of Psalm 13, How Long, O Lord, on the You Shine Integrity album, the, 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 the heads of integrity showed up at the live recording. They heard our practice and they said, you can't do that song. That's too much of a downer. And I said, okay, here's the deal. You guys are the record label. At the end, you'll, you'll, you know, you'll get to make the decision, but I'm pleading with you. Let me do it as part of the night and watch what happens when I do it. Okay, we'll let you do that. I did it. Then they said, yeah, we saw what happened. That was really good. That was really helpful. We'll, we'll let you include it on the album. But I have to fight every single time to include one. There you go. And it's never changed. It's never changed. Oh, that's really, oh boy, I'm fascinated by that. Well, Brian, thanks so much for your time. Uh, this was really meaningful for me, and I, I just appreciate your graciousness and willing to go to different places today. So, Oh, you're very welcome. Yeah. Thanks for having me, and great joy to join you. To further support the show, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media and learn more about Tenth Theology at www.tenththeology.com. Thank you for joining us and God bless everyone.